This is On Point. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. Earlier this week, Maui County officials told Hawaiians that the search for victims of the deadly Lahaina, Olinda, and Kula fires is essentially complete. They've searched 99% of the devastated areas and do not expect the death toll to rise much higher than the 115 people declared dead so far. However, a list of missing people still contains almost 390 names. In addition... The threat of future fires is still urgently real in Hawaii. This weekend, Tana Swanson was in the middle of an interview with Hawaii News Now when she was told that fires were burning in the Kanaipali Gulf Estates, only about two miles from the Lahaina Civic Center. So it's hard to fathom, and you find out that, you know, you're still required to make a mortgage payment, um, even though your house is burnt to the ground. And... uh, and you've lost your jobs because your business is gone. So, hi. Um, I've got to go. I have staff members that are in Kahanapali and they need to be evacuated. There. So I must go and evacuate more staff right now. Okay. Thank you so much. Those static noises you just heard was the sound of producers trying to quickly remove Tana's microphone as she hurried away. Well, that fire was contained before it jumped to homes in the neighborhood, but the flames came within about 20 feet from houses. Meanwhile, Maui County Mayor Richard Bisson says communities will rebuild. It will be a priority list of uh, how we go back. Not everyone will go back all at the same time. Uh, We want people to go back to their property. We want people to go back to their land. We know people want to go back to, to look through what's there especially those people whose homes are still standing in the burn area. The Federal Emergency Management Agency is also confident that communities can be rebuilt. It takes about six months to a year to clear the debris from an event this size, a FEMA rep told reporters on Monday. This will take some time. It has to be done appropriately, safely, culturally, respectfully, and in a dignified way. Well, Hawaii is just the latest in a disheartening trend. The number of homes destroyed by wildfires in the western United States has jumped by nearly 250 percent in the past two decades, according to a recent study. Residents who've lost their homes in all those places have had, and will have to, rebuild their houses and their lives. Their communities have had to struggle with how to change the physical infrastructure and emergency management infrastructure of entire cities and towns. So what changes can they make to create more resilient homes and communities? Now, we can talk about ideas such as, well, they should just move away from fire-prone areas. But I'd say that's a far too easy critique made by people who live far away because the reality in the West is that everywhere is fire-prone now. At this moment, state fire and hotspots dashboards show that fires are burning in Western Idaho and Montana, northern, central, and southern California, central Arizona and central Utah, western Colorado, eastern, central, and western Washington, and central and southern Oregon. Well, that is where Rodrigo Moraga is right now. He's a wildland firefighter with Left Hand Fire Protection District in Boulder County, Colorado. He's also a fire behavior analyst, and he is currently deployed in Redmond, Oregon, dealing with fires there. And he was able to join us today. Rodrigo, welcome to On Point. Hello. 
So, I mean, can you first just bring us up to speed on the fires that uh, you've been deployed to? What's burning? Where and what do you expect over the next couple of days? Well, uh, our team, we are an incident management team. And so our job is to manage larger fires where we have uh, so many more firefighters and, and equipment and everything that it's beyond the uh, scope of what the local fire department can handle. And that's when we come in and, and uh, take over. So with that, this particular area that we're in, um, just looking at our morning briefing today, we have over 18 major fires. So those are the ones that are being managed again by by large federal teams. Uh, on top of that are you know, numerous other fires that are still being uh, attempted to be controlled at the local level. So um, what happened here was just a very uh, large dry lightning storm came across the, the entire area, Washington and Oregon, and lit literally hundreds of fires. This happens uh, regularly, mm -hmm. but if conditions are right, then we start to get a lot of those little fires uh, to, to grow and then get out of control. Yeah, and conditions are right far more frequently these days. I'm wondering about, I mean, the speed that fire wildfires can spread is truly um, awe and terror inspiring. Um, actually, just a little bit earlier this summer, I was not far from where you are right now. Rodrigo is in the, in the Bend uh, area and um, just sort of driving into Bend, uh, near Bend, Oregon, um, a, a camper had let their lo little campfire get out of control, and within 24 hours, it had become a 3,500-acre blaze. So, what I wonder is, do you, what's the like the, the weather forecast in the next couple of days in terms of is there more wind? Is there any rain in the forecast? Any relief, or is there a concern that these fires could spread even faster and farther? Well, when I got here yesterday. Uh, it was in the 70s, and the wind was blowing the entire day. Um, it, it's been uh, what happens is as storms come, you know, out of the Pacific, if they don't bring the moisture, they typically just push the winds out, and um, that's what we see right now. They are calling for some moderation of that uh, through this weekend. A little bit of rain is supposed to come in, uh, but then it starts to dry up again next week. So you know, fairly common uh, pattern for for this time of year uh, that you get some breaks, but you know we're still we're still uh, in the in the I guess the the fire season. Mm -hmm. And fire season seems ever longer. I have to say, as each year goes by. Now, you not only have your professional experience um, as uh, a uh, a fire behavior analyst, but you also have personal experience. Can you tell us what happened to your own home back in 2010? Yes. So uh, in 2010, we were, uh, this was uh, in the foothills of uh, Boulder, Colorado. And we had a home there. And uh, there was a fire that started on Labor Day, actually. And we had a, uh, a very strong wind, we call them the Chinook, similar to the Santa Ana's. And so we were getting 40 plus mile an hour winds that day and uh, we had an ignition. And so the fire started and uh, just exploded and began to uh, run across the landscape. And I was actually uh, 
operations chief on that fire so i was i was managing the you know the strategies of of how to to uh, suppress it but in that time it had been moving away from my home for the most part and then at some point i got a report that the fire had jumped the canyon and was now moving what would be towards my home so um i realized that you know it was threatened and went over um, when i had a chance and took a look at uh the the you know the my, my where the fire was to my home and uh i checked it twice over the over the afternoon but then the, the third time uh the fire was just coming right down towards the house um my house was on a flat piece of land but there was a huge uh slope hill behind me with with a lot of forest so i just watched the fire uh just come down that hill and then once it caught the the corner of my my uh, porch uh, there was nothing more we could do so i didn't have any uh, fire engines available to to help put it out unfortunately so i just watched it uh burn you watched your house burn down wow how long did that take from you know you said you checked it a couple of times after it had jumped the canyon i mean how how fast did the destruction happen well, it was a couple of hours from, you know, as I tracked uh-huh. as it moved closer. But as far as how long it took to burn the house down, um, honestly, uh, you know, I'd say within 30 minutes, it was beyond, um, you know, two thirds probably uh, engulfed at that point. So there was no hope of, of putting it out. Yeah. Uh, can you tell me? For for people who haven't experienced having to flee from uh, a fire like that, or who ha- also haven't experienced the actual witnessing of their houses being destroyed, can you tell me like what could you feel the heat? Could you feel the wind? Were there embers flying? I mean, what was it? What did you see and feel as you were watching your house burn? Well, honestly, I was sort of preoccupied doing my <laughs> yeah. job. Yeah, um, there were over 168 homes burning uh the course of that day and and you know it it's amazing that at that time that was the highest structure loss in our county and that has been surpassed um several times now unfortunately um so uh as far as what it looked like you know for me i'm 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 accustomed to it i mean I'm, Mm -hmm. i'm on the fire lines all the time so uh, yeah, it's it's very hot, and and the the heat from a from a structure burning is is very uh, intense, and more importantly, very toxic. So it's not uh, it's not like when you're on a forest fire, you you know you watch it from a distance because um, you you don't want to get too close to anything that's burning. The embers, uh, basically, what what happened in my house was uh, rolling um, pine cones and things that came down the hill ahead of the main fire front, but they were all, you know, on fire and then sort of got under the porch and started catching the porch on fire. Uh, but then the embers that that generated from the house are what's really uh, significant. And, and you know, we're, you mentioned the, the, Lahaina, the Lahaina fire, and um, that is where we start to see what we call urban conflagration, yeah. right? So the... Yeah. Well, I'm going to actually just jump in here really quickly, Rodrigo, because we... We have to take a quick break, but the visual that you've left us with, with the rolling firebombs of pine cones is really going to stay with me for a while. Stick with us because you did rebuild your home 
uh, after that 2010 uh, Boulder County fire. And so we're going to talk more about how to rebuild resilient communities when we come back. This is On Point. Support for the On Point podcast comes from Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. Ditch the busy work and use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com onpoint. That's Indeed.com onpoint. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. The world's clean energy future relies on ancient elements still in the ground. Without mining, there will not be a clean energy transition. But pulling them out of the ground comes at an environmental and human cost. Mining is intrusive, but the results are the building blocks for products that we use every single day. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. Join me for Elements of Energy, Mining for a Green Future. Five consecutive episodes right here. So make sure you're following this podcast. This is On Point. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty, and today we're joined by Rodrigo Moraga. He's in Redmond, Oregon. Usually he's in Boulder County, Colorado, where he's a firefighter and fire behavior analyst with Left Hand Fire Protection District. He's in Oregon right now, assisting wildfire fighting efforts there. Uh, He also lost his own home to fire in 2010. And in a few minutes, we'll be joined also by the author of a new book on how to protect yourself, your home, and your community in the age of heat. But as I said earlier, there are so many communities under threat right now that we have a lot to learn about how people who have suffered through wildfires have rebuilt. So I just want to spend another couple of minutes listening to the voice of someone else who lived through a truly devastating Western wildfire. Because on November 8th, 2018, Paradise, California, as you might remember, was almost entirely destroyed by what was called the Camp Fire. That fire killed 85 people. Well, Missy Bernard was a nurse. She was at work at the hospital that day when the flames came burning down. And so we decided we had to evacuate the patients immediately, like in our own cars. Uh, We didn't have time to wait for ambulances or anything like that. And so I grabbed uh, my car and I I put a patient in and I drove them through darkness and smoke and mayhem um, to get out of paradise. Missy was able to be reunited with her family later that afternoon. As for her home, she didn't know what happened until a couple of weeks later. Most people still weren't allowed back into what was left of paradise. A friend of mine um, who was in law enforcement actually came to the property to take pictures because people were not sure. And the way that fire spun around with these fire natos, some people's houses in burnt. You know, we assumed that they did, but every once in a while someone found out that it hadn't. And so a buddy of ours sent us a picture um, of of the ash that was our, our block. It was also a picture that contained the ash 
that was her home because her house was gone, which Missy says is hardly a surprise. They had barely done anything to fire harden it. Our house was kind of a typical rural California ranch built in the 70s, wooden construction. Above the garage was this patio that was covered with all these wooden um pillars. It was this this cool porch area. We had uh, all of our firewood stacked up against the house, the wood, the firewood on a wood deck next to a wood house. (laughs) But that the structure itself, you know, we had a lot of plants directly right next to it and growing over it with a lot of things leaning up against the house. (laughs) Flammable things like firewood. (laughs) I really feel for Missy because, as she said, her house was a typical rural California ranch. People live this way and have been living this way for decades and decades. Wooden decks, wood to fire your stoves or your fireplaces. It was all just stored in the the same place. That was normal. Now, Missy says that after the fire, leaving paradise just wasn't an option because her family, her community, all lived in the Sierra Nevada foothills. So she rebuilt but this time without the wooden deck and stacks of firewood. Our house is metal construction. So all the studs are steel. We have no gutters. Gutters was, turns out to be a big thing because they collect leaves and pine trees and they get really dry and then that stuff catches on fire. Well, there's more to Missy's story and how she rebuilt and how the community of Paradise uh, faced the challenges of rebuilding. We're going to hear more from Missy a little later in the show. But I want to now bring Justin Angle into the conversation. He's an associate professor of marketing at the Poe Family Distinguished Faculty and excuse me, and the Poe Family Distinguished Faculty Fellow at the University of Montana. He's co-host of a podcast called Fireline and co-author of a new book called This is Wildfire, How to Protect Yourself, Your Home, and Your Community in the Age of Heat. Professor Engel, welcome to On Point. Thanks for having me. So what got a marketing professor interested in thinking about resilience in the age of wildfires? Yeah, I moved to Missoula, Montana in 2012 and had not lived in a fire-prone land before, and quickly became aware that this is not only an area where wildfire plays uh, a major role in the landscape, but it also plays a major role in the culture of the community. We have great fire science happening here. We have great firefighting. The Smoke Jumper Training Center is here. Smoke Jumper Base is here. A national fire lab is here. And so many of the people I was meeting in my new community were working kind of at the tip of the spear in the wildfire space. And I didn't really understand the work they were doing or wildfire in general, and just started getting more and more interested in it. And it occurred to me that the public did not have much of an understanding of how to make sense of what was happening on the fire line. You know, we'd get reports from, you know, incident response teams and read what was happening in the media. And it's just hard to make sense of the vocabulary. It's hard to understand um, what our role is as members of a community. And so just set out on this long journey to try to better understand fire. It, it led to a podcast project called Fireline, as you mentioned, and then it led to this book opportunity. So I just sort of uh, stumbled into it out of a, out of a 
desire to just understand uh, how I could play a role myself in trying to be a part of solutions to this wildfire crisis. Yeah, actually what I really appreciate about your journey into becoming something of a fire expert is that it came from a place of um, thinking about how much you didn't understand in the community, which I think many people who, even even though they've been living year after year now in the West with the threat of fire, um, that's an authentic feeling that they might have too. Now, I'm going to bring Rodrigo back in here in just a second, but uh, Professor Angle, let me ask you, after you started immersing yourself uh, in this deeper understanding of wildfire and how it changes lives and communities, did you, was there, was there a moment or an instant where Maybe you came home one day and you were like looking at your house and for the first time you thought, oh, is this a fire ready home? Did you reassess your own physical living circumstances? Absolutely. And I continue to reassess on a daily basis and look at my home and think about all the things I need to do to really make it uh, as fire resilient as it can be. I mean, my home is on the northern part of Missoula, an area called the Rattlesnake Valley and it is just a large swath of densely wooded open space to the north of our house. So if a fire comes from the north, you know, my house and others in my neighborhood are kind of the first stop on that train. So, yeah, I think about this every day and I've been trying to chip away at it. And, you know, a lot of the work we'll talk about in the in the coming minutes here um, is stuff that I'm, I'm trying to get a, a my head around doing myself in my own home. Okay. So what I'd like to do, uh, gentlemen, is kind of start at the individual level with creating resilient individual homes. And then we'll sort of zoom out stage by stage into the neighborhood stage, the community stage, uh, and then even more broadly than that, when we really get into planning and zoning and um, emergency management. So, Rodrigo, let's start, again, with just individual homes or buildings, right? It's not just homes that get destroyed. Is every single part of a home that has not been fire-hardened vulnerable to um, not just burning, but accelerating a burn through through a home due to wildfire? Yes. Um, I mean, the, 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 the fire typically, you know, uh, some people tend to imagine these walls of flame that come across and, and burn homes down, but that isn't the case. Uh, the primary uh, mechanism of how homes burn down is embers, spots, right? We call them spotting, but embers that come off of the whatever's burning ahead of the fire. And embers have a way of finding the weakest link in your home. And that could be, as was mentioned before, a, a gutter that has pine needles in it, uh, a wood pile that's up against your home. But it's also things that are that are less obvious. Uh, a laundry vent where your where your heater vents out is a hole into your home. Uh, eaves that we have by design in order to have our houses, you know, vent and 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 dry. Well, those eaves, when you imagine wind pushing towards them those embers are going to get pushed into your attic, into your, you know, any sort of crawl space, et cetera. And, and the fire will start to, you know, find something you can burn in there. So we see a lot of homes actually burn inside out. Wow. Okay. So roofs, eaves, gutters, walls, decks, as we've been talking about, even flammable materials in surrounding, uh, gardens or lands or 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 lawns 
Um, I mean, and the other thing is just the basic um, material that so many homes in the West are built with because forests, you know, were plentiful back then. So a, a lot is just built with with wood, right, Rodrigo? Yes, that's that is the you know wood is the primary uh, material for construction. You know, it's it's the easiest to to uh, you know manufacture. It's it's cheapest relative to to other materials that we could use. And so, um, you know, for a long time, that has been what what people have used. And so that that's part of the challenge. You know, I've been uh, I'm also a consultant or have been for years. And and so you know going to neighborhoods and identifying uh and i know we're going to talk about neighborhoods but you know the the construction type the older the area is the the more flammable it typically is Mm, okay well just an angle when someone let's let's imagine someone's listening to this show and then steps outside their home to sort of look around uh a home that has not been burnt down right thankfully where should they first look to um, a assess the resilience of their home, and b um, you know for places that they ought to they ought to change, improve, modify? Where would you look? I would look first at the things that you can do most quickly and with the least amount of effort. So we've mentioned gutters. Thinking about your gutters, making sure they're clean of debris. Getting on your roof, making sure the roof is as clean of debris as possible. Looking at the um, the ground within five feet of the home. Is there any vegetation touching the home? Do you have anything flammable stored up against the home or underneath your deck that you can move? Do you have a vehicle with a, or, or a um, power tool with a gas engine anywhere near the house or even a gas can anywhere near the house? So stuff that's sort of easy to address uh, in a short period of time is where I would start. And then as you're looking Wait, can I just jump process, in here, uh, Justin, yeah. for a second? Cars. Everyone yes. has, a, I mean, like if you've got a garage, you've got a car in it probably, right? And uh, unless it's a an electric vehicle, that means that there's a large flammable source right in the house. I mean, are you real are we really living in an age where we're suggesting people park their cars outside of their garages or at least 5 to 10 feet away from their homes? No, not necessarily okay. suggesting that, but if you do have a closed garage, then making sure that that structure is as resilient to wildfire as it can I be. I got gotcha. you. Okay. Certainly though, if a fire is imminent, if it's in the area, you know, getting that car, um, if, if, you know, if you've evacuated in your car, that's another thing, but getting that car, you know, distant from the property is is probably something to consider. Okay. I'm going to come back to you in just a second, but Rodrigo, when uh, Justin mentioned that five foot uh, sort of boundary uh, around a home and trying to eliminate as much flammable material from it as possible, I mean, are we talking about kind of just, you want to get down to essentially kind of a, a, a a rock or completely uh, inflammable surface around your house? Ideally, yes. We're talking about hardscaping, as it's called. And um, we it, it picture a skirt, if you will, around your home of, of unburnable material. And, and typically rock is what's recommended. We used to recommend uh, wood chips and, and mulch, but um, those are now uh, proving to be just as flammable as everything else. And so you 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 basically just want to make a, a a border around your home with the idea that if those embers land there, they're not going to catch fire. 
um, they're just going to burn out because there's there's no fuel for them. So, yes, that is, that is the intent. The challenge, though, um, you know, what's been mentioned is typical of, of the more rural areas, mountain areas like where I used to live. And uh, it sounds like where Justin lives. But, you know, the last several major fires we've seen that have been most destructive have actually been in what we would consider suburban areas. Mm-hmm. And so not people, um, not areas where people even think about wildfire. And what we've identified from some of the losses is that, you know, even even your fence now is something you need to think about. You gotta you have to imagine a wooden fence as a fuse that basically leads right up to your house because most people have fences that surround their home and touch their home on either side. And if that's a wood fence, then it is basically taking the fire from that point in and then against your home. Hmm. Okay. So Justin, then with that in mind, continue on, continue on in terms of where you would look. Now, Rodrigo is actually very rightfully, this is his expertise shining through, talking about suburban areas which have suffered dramatically where else would you look and we're talking about fences now are there other things that are quickly are, are relatively easy to uh, to harden justin well there's there's you certainly have to go around your home and start making a list if you have a wooden roof as many homes in the west do that is a giant surface area vulnerable to a floating ember and an ignition and that is something that that you should prioritize for fixing. It's an expensive investment. There are grant programs available and you should research the availability availability of that grant funding in your locality. Also insert that I think there's a need for public investment in this type of thing because there's over a million homes in the West with, with, wooden, with wooden roofs. Um, things like the fences, things like wooden decks, um, the vegetation around your house. We mentioned that sort of hardscaping the immediate area, but you got to think about the trees further out, the vegetation further out, how densely collected is it? How can it transport fire? I think the fence and fuse metaphor um, is yeah. a great way to think about it. That, that, that same effect can occur in the canopy of trees around your home. If there's a tree that uh, who, whose canopy kind of overhangs your house, be thinking about trimming that back. Does it even the need idea- to overhang? Because asking for a friend, AKA my own family <laughs> that lives sure. in Oregon, there's no trees that overhang. Oh gosh, I'm running out of time for this segment, but there's no branches that overhang, but the closest trees are within 10 feet and they're big. Yeah, that's something to be thinking about. And how connected are those trees to other vegetation? Or Very. Are they isolated? I mean, that, that is the West, isn't it? Um, Indeed. Got to take a quick break. We'll talk a lot more about building resilient homes and communities when we come back. This is On Point. Did you kill Marlene Johnson? I think you're one of the first people to have actually asked. From WBUR and ZSP Media, this is Beyond All Repair, a new podcast about an unsolved murder that will leave you questioning everything. Somebody should be in jail for murdering my sister. A woman who's never been believed. As long as they think I have done this, then they're not looking for who actually did this. And that's what makes it a cold case. No, it's a botched case. And a search for the truth, once and for all. Wow, it just gets more interesting. Beyond All Repair. 
Listen and follow wherever you get your podcasts. Be careful. You're digging in a place that's been very peaceful for a while. Do it anyway. Dig. This is On Point. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. I wanted to take a, just a quick second to offer a very special hello to listeners in California's San Joaquin Valley. You've been hearing On Point for the first time this week on KVPR, and we are truly honored to join you on your airwaves there from Fresno, Bakersfield, and wherever you are in that part of the Central Valley. So welcome to the On Point family. Today, we're talking about fire and fire resilience uh, in the age of a near year-round fire season in the Western United States. And I'm joined by Justin Angle. He's author of This is Wildfire, How to Protect Yourself, Your Home, and Your Community in the Age of Heat. He's with us from Missoula, Montana. And Rodrigo Moraga is also with us. He's a firefighter and fire behavior analyst with Left Hand Fire Protection District in Boulder County, Colorado. Today he's in Redmond, Oregon, assisting fire uh, suppression and fighting efforts there. Now, a little earlier in the show, we heard from Missy Barnard, who lives in Paradise, California. And yes, in 2018, it is that paradise that nearly, that basically burnt to the ground uh, and killed 85 people. Missy had told us a little bit about how she rebuilt her home uh, and made it a more fire-hardened structure. So let's hear a little bit more about how she did that. Her new house is designed in the style of a Quonset hut. Those are structures that were first built in World War II as a low-cost way to build housing or storage. The structure looks like an elongated arch of corrugated metal, kind of like a giant soup can on its side. With the curved-shaped roof, even if there were flying embers, which was a big factor in the campfire, embers would fall on people's houses and then sit there and, and smolder. But um, it would slide off of this very thick metal roof. Missy also tells us that the community of Paradise is rebuilding together. There's now an early warning siren system and neighborhood Facebook groups to update each other in real time about fire risks. Believe it or not, as much as sometimes we think social media, particularly Facebook, you know, can sow a lot of hatred and problems, we, that was the best way for people to communicate with each other during the actual fire of where are my friends, where are you, where are we going? And then after the fire, there were people giving away, there were so many resources of free food and gas cards and uh, all of these things that I learned through Facebook and that a lot of people who were not on social media didn't know about. So social media is important during disasters. It's a great, it's the best way to communicate how people can get help. So fire-hardened individual homes and a reliable and trustworthy information infra infrastructure. Well, Missy also says that Paradise is planning to improve its roadways to avoid a repeat of the disastrous evacuation. Some people just said, screw it, and went off the side of the road and hit mailboxes and didn't care. Some people sat in traffic and died. <laughs> um, some people had to get out of their cars and run because their car was on fire. So uh, the town definitely looked at that as a whole and are working on expanding the roadways themselves to make them wider in a couple of spots and actually putting through 
I know of at least one roadway in a part of town where that really needs a connecting route. So that, yeah, that was looked at right after the fire of, of what can we do so that th- that traffic jam never happens again. So redesigning entire communities there. Now, the truth is the population of Paradise is still only about one third of what it was before the 2018 fire. But nevertheless, Missy says slowly but surely, Paradise is coming back to life. There are people moving here from all over the country because they want to live outside of the city where there's clean air, clean water, where it's safe. And we're being part of something that's growing. And that's really exciting. And the, the Little League is killing it and the schools are filling up. And so the demographic has changed here and it's a budding town. And so that's the, a beautiful recovery story of this uh, phoenix rising from the ashes in Paradise, California. It's Missy Barnard in Paradise, California. Well, Rodrigo Moraga, you heard Missy's story there, uh, Quonset style home, all metal, definitely all metal roof. What were the major changes that you made to your home um, after you lost it in 2010? Well, we first we we had um, had already uh, looked at moving into town because of uh, just the logistics of having a young son at that time and and going up and down this canyon road that uh, I once counted had over 75 turns in it to my home. So, you know, we, we were kind of come off the hill anyway, as it were, and we uh, moved into the town proper, but uh, we still built <laughs> as if we were living in, in the, uh, in the forest. Uh, my home has uh, what's called aerated concrete block. It's, it's a, a material that that's similar to a pumice. It's incredibly light, um, but it's also incredibly fire resistant and you can use it as exterior walls. So there's no wood involved in that. It's, it's just this, um, this concrete block. And then our floors are raw concrete, poured concrete. And then we have interior walls as well that are, that are raw concrete. We do have some stick frame, you know, uh, I, from one room to another, you still need that to, to make hang doors, et cetera. But uh, for the most part, the home is um, very, very fire resistant. Rodrigo, may I ask, um, maybe I'm imagining the wrong thing, but it almost sounds like you're living in a concrete bunker. Does it look like that inside the house? No, not okay. at all. It's, okay. uh, we get a lot of compliments on our home. It's a, <laughs> it's a beautiful, uh, very modern uh, home. Uh, based off of some Mexican architecture. Yeah. Well, um, I, I asked yeah, that sure. not to be entirely facetious, but in order to sort of uh, get us to ask, like, people want to love living where they live, right? They want to they want to feel comfortable and good and, and beautiful inside their home. So it sounds like what you're saying, that even with making drastic changes to how your home is constructed to make it fireproof, you don't actually, you don't have at all have to, you know, give up that sense that this is my space. It's beautiful. Um, it feels like living almost anywhere else, except it's safer from fire. Right. Exactly. Yes. I mean, without going into a whole lot of detail, the the interior finish of those those uh, concrete um, exterior is 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 a clay, and so it, it actually has a very warm feeling to it. Uh-huh. It's not, you know, it's, it's not like living in a bunker, as you okay. said, but. Um, it's, it's actually, it's actually a very beautiful home and, and it 
changed my attitude because I am, you know, I'm also, my background is as a forester and um, I love wood and I would, you know, wanted that typical log cabin. You know, if I had the dream, it would have been, you know, big, massive timbers, all this stuff. And my wife, um, you know, she's an artist and just has a great uh, eye for, for architecture and was like, trust me, we can, you know, we can make this and, and make it look beautiful. And it absolutely is. So yeah, if for the people listening, you don't have to turn your, you know, you don't have to turn it into some ugly uh, cell block. Yeah. There are a lot of materials out there and there are materials that have been used around the world for years. That's, that's probably the, 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 you know, the thing that, that struck me the most is aerated. It's actually called aerated autoclaved concrete. And if you were to look that up, you would find out that they've been using it for a very long time in the world. Uh, it's just not very well known here in the U.S. Yeah. And just quickly, Rodrigo, this is for new construction. Are there similar materials available for like retrofit of existing structures? Th- that is a bit of a challenge. Uh, the the uh, has been mentioned a few times. Changing your roof type is something that that is, you know, fairly uh, I wouldn't say easy, but uh, it's doable. You know, mm-hmm. trying to change your walls from from what they are to something new is is a bit more difficult. Stucco is a possibility, um, but stuck not all stucco is the same. And without boring the audience, you know, the there is a, a vast difference in the types of stucco and how it is applied as to whether or not it's just sort of a uh, you know a, a, an exterior finish for aesthetics versus actually being uh, quite a fire resistant material. Got it. Well Justin Angle, let me turn back to you because um, I'm a little late in my desire to zoom out <laughs> to higher levels of analysis here um, because, you know, Rodrigo had mentioned earlier that we're seeing some of the worst losses in suburban neighborhoods now. And then we heard Missy say, well, as Paradise is rebuilding, it's thinking about even its street layout to be sure people can get out quickly. It sounds like this sort of overall neighborhood and town planning is a really key part of making existing locations more resilient, and then also new developments that go up. Do you think there's adequate planning right now for um, for all the new places that are being constructed in the Western United States to make them fire-hardened? I think there's a range. I think there's some communities, Boulder County in particular, that are doing a wonderful job of trying to kind of retrofit and redesign the community to the extent that's possible. You know, we've talked a lot about things that the individual can do, there are limits to what any individual can do, both in terms of, um, you know, the effort it takes, but also the expense, like putting on a new roof is expensive. And one of the other pieces of this is this defensible space we're talking about often includes your neighbor's house or maybe more than one house. And so, these sorts of home hardening efforts need to be adopted at the community level, at the neighborhood level, because your home is only safe to the extent that your neighbor's home is safe. Once your na- If your neighbor's home catches fire, then that becomes a tremendous risk to your home, no matter how hardened it is. So having these sorts of practices adopted at the community level, and I think they need to be built into zoning and codes and things like that. And, and, and we're probably, I hope to see more sort of nuance in the insurance and mortgage industries, because just as State Farm has done in California, pulling out of a market entirely is not really a nuanced uh, way to manage the problem. We could incentivize uh, 
you know, personal and public investment yeah. in these sorts of practices to sort of create more systemic change. Yeah. Well, quarterly reports don't really tolerate nuance, do they, <laughs> when it comes <laughs> no, to profit and loss? But but you, um, you're saying something really, really important because I know a lot of people listening to this who aren't living uh, in the Western United States. One of their natural responses is, well, you know, Missy said earlier, people are moving back to paradise because... Uh, it's a beautiful place in the woods and they want to be part of that. Well, maybe we shouldn't be building in fire-prone areas. I hear that all the time. Let's just uh, accept for a moment that that's not realistic either, that growth in these states is going to continue. Um, But I do wonder, I I mean, we have reached the point, haven't we, where um, local and state officials need to sort of build the courage to say, well, if you're going to build a development over there, your houses have to be more than, you know, five feet from the property line. You're going to have to actually tolerate having fewer homes in the development so that these places can be farther apart. The materials will have to be such and such, like you said, or uh, the the kind of pumice-like concrete that Rodrigo is talking about. You have to plan the community so that uh, rapid evacuation can can happen. You said you hope these things happen, Justin. Are, are there not really... Are you not really seeing the kind of changes that we would need in zoning requirements to make future uh, communities more resilient? And then, Rodrigo, I'm going to want to hear from you on this, too. I think we are seeing examples of it. I think one of the problems is structural, though, in that there is a moral hazard often if you're looking at a municipal administrator. That person... um, you know, local government will bear the benefit or will, will, will experience the benefit of the property taxes that that new development generates, but they don't bear the cost of the fire suppression. That's often um, borne out by, you know, national federal taxpayers because it's often the Forest Service and other agencies, but often it's not the, the, the municipality that bears the majority of that cost. So there is this kind of disconnect and a perverse incentive to approve development, um, even though it might be risky development. Um, we're seeing pockets of, of thoughtful development. I mentioned Boulder County. There's other communities in the West that are taking this very seriously and doing great work. But um, it's sort of in isolated pockets. And I think you know the, the increase of events that we're seeing across the West and in Lahaina and other places are raising the salience of this issue and, and, and are sort of getting communities to think about it more and more um, proactively. Mm. I want to be optimistic about this. But, you know, right now, as we're having this conversation about fire, there's yet another hurricane smashing Florida. And I'm not sure that we've seen in, you know, many, many years adequate changes in terms of hurricane preparedness in in uh, hurricane-prone states, even though we know that they're going to hit get hit eventually and again and again. So... Rodrigo, I mean, what would you like to see in terms of changes, broader changes in community planning, in zoning? And do you think it's possible? I do think it's possible that the challenge is always um, to what extent, because there is an expense that comes with this. And, you know, if if you're a developer and you're looking to build a, a new subdivision, that that is the opportunity to build the, you know, the perfect uh, model of, of how it should look. But, you know, again, they need to make a profit, you know, and, and so how much are they willing to to put into this? Uh, things like roads, you know, that was mentioned, evacuation planning is probably the most uh, important element these days. And I say that because fires, not all, obviously, but many of these destructive 
extreme fire events that we're seeing really don't allow for any type of suppression until much later on. And so the the primary focus is is life safety, and that comes down to evacuation planning. And um, again, places that have already been built are sort of you know they got they, they've got what they've got, and putting in a new road to to an existing developed area is actually very challenging mm-hmm. right because you're more than likely going through another property uh you know something that's already owned but going forward i think you know one is that zoning and codes uh, as we mentioned a few times you know boulder county where we actually do have some very progressive uh, zoning uh codes going on but a lot of the country um you know the Different states are very different about how much they're willing to push onto the uh, the citizens. And yeah. so that's really where it comes down to is you can only control your property. Gotcha. Well, you know what? It seems to me that in the age of almost constant wildfire threat, having a, a new community that is fire hardened and fire resilient might actually be a selling point for developers looking for buyers in those communities. But... Rodrigo Moraga, firefighter and fire behavior analyst with Left Hand Fire Protection District in Boulder County, Colorado, with us today from Oregon. Thank you so much. And Justin Angle, co-author of This is Wildfire, thank you too. This is On Point.